Hello and welcome to episode 60 of the Synergen Leadership Podcast. For those of you who are listening for the first time, my name is Julian Carl and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Synergen Group. I'm passionate about all things leadership and management, so passionate in fact that I decided to start a podcast about it. And here we are in season two and my purpose for the podcast continues to be the same, to raise the standard of leadership. In today's show, I speak with Brian Whitefield, who is the author of Winning Conversations, How to Turn Red Tape into Blue Ribbon. With over 30 years of experience across engineering, financial services, and management consulting, Brian has helped thousands of executives achieve their goals. His passion is for making the difficult and complex doable. He has authored books on decision-making and influencing, and is featured in the Weekend Australian, News.com, CEO World Magazine, HR Director, and a myriad of other publications, podcasts, and radio interviews. Brian has worked with organisations across all sectors of the economy, including Brisbane Airport, Cancer Council Australia, Department of Defence, Downer, McConnell Dow, QBE, Santos and Extrata. Brian was President and Chair of the Board of Risk Management Institute of Australasia from 2013 through 2015. And he's also known for his workshop facilitation skills and his ability to engage and influence at board and executive level. He helps organisations drive risk leadership from risk management programs, reframe decisions using data, and he works with corporate services to cut red tape and create blue ribbon. So during the course of the conversation, we do explore Brian's book in great detail. I start off by asking Brian about why he decided to write the book. We speak about the building blocks of persuasion and what the push and pull of persuasion is. We explore the importance of sometimes needing to think fast and sometimes the need to think slow. And then I finish up the interview by asking Brian about the idea of deep listening and why it's such an important aspect. So keep listening and as always, would really like to hear your thoughts about the interview with Brian Whitefield, author of Winning Conversations. Happy listening. Welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Julian returns in 2019 with weekly conversations with leaders and authors from Australia and around the world giving you the opportunity to share in their journey and learn from their expertise and knowledge. Julian also shares some of the tools and techniques he uses as a leader, mentor and facilitator, helping you to build your leadership capability and improve your confidence as a leader. Well, welcome, Brian, to the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Really happy that you've taken the time to be a part of it so that the listeners have a bit of an idea about uh, who you are. Who is Brian Whitefield? Well, thanks, Julian. Thanks very much for inviting me onto your podcast. Uh, Who's Brian Whitefield? (laughs) I'm originally a chemical engineer, and how did I get into that? I got into it because I went to an open day at Sydney University many years ago, and I looked at this thing, which later I found out was a distillation column, and what was going on inside this glass one just completely fascinated me. And uh, I decided I'd like to do that. I didn't have anything in particular in mind, but this was really complex and interesting. And that's what it turns out that turns me on, complexity. I really like complexity. And over the years, um, I've learnt to, well, I grew into a, a risk management consultant um, in the insurance industry, investigating um, fires and explosions and writing reports for underwriters to help prevent them. Um, but in more recent years, I've, I've turned myself into a, a management consultant, um, helping people manage uncertainty. And uh, in, more, in more recent times, and over those years, I, I learned how to influence uh, executive and boards. And that's what I'm known for, in particular, around managing uncertainty. And 
ultimately, I said to myself one day, uh, I'm helping, I'm influencing boards and execs, and other people don't have the same impact. And I'm uh, sort of looking to me and asking, well, what's the difference? And so one day I sat down and unpacked what I was doing um, and realized, and in, you know, did some research on it as well to understand it better. And ultimately, I, I then packaged that up into a, a program myself and, uh, and wrote this book, uh, Winning Conversations, How to Turn Red Tape into Blue Ribbon. So it's just my years and years of experience of influencing boards and execs and, and, and package it up for, for the world. I originally planned to, to ask you that actually question, why did you decide to write it? And you sort of um, alluded to it there. Was it really to share the framework so that other people could replicate what you were doing? Yes, it was to share the framework, but the driver was the frustration I saw on people's faces when they were being rejected. So the main audience for the book is internal advisors in organisations who are trying to influence a very busy and hopefully highly productive front office. And the front office is being tapped on the shoulder by, by HR, by, by finance, by risk compliance, by procurement people, all with their version of, of what the front office sees as red tape. And, and to get the job done, they're holding up their hand. And the people in the back office find themselves talking to this hand and they, and they get frustrated. And, they, and the, you know, the most common thing I would hear from people is like, I can't get the CEO to listen to me. The, the, they don't trust me. Um, they keep cancelling meetings on me. They're just not getting traction. And so it's actually that, that frustration that drove me to, to, to work out how I was doing it so as I could help others. And by writing the book, of course, you can reach a lot more people. Yeah, so so it was driven to, to do that, but then putting the framework in a, in, a, in a book in a simple way that people can follow was the ultimate decision. Well, I do want to uh, dig a bit, uh, well, significantly deeper in, in, into the book, but I want to start with a little bit of an excerpt. This book focuses on persuasion for the better and is for internal advisors in organisations. It will help the reflective leader look to broad look broadly at the wider impacts of the decisions made by those you advise so that your advice will be top-notch blue ribbon advice and not be or be perceived to be a recommendation for more red tape. At the same time, it offers a simple formula and provides practical tools and clear examples on how to persuade others. So was that a, a real driver in terms of wanting people to have all these tools? Yeah, absolutely. Look, everyone can look at someone and say, wow, that person commands an audience. That person holds a room. Now, some of those people are just natural, but others have found a way to do it. And sometimes, like my way, um, it was over the years through the school of hard knocks, being um, either turfed out of, of boardrooms or, 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 or shut down in, in discussions because I wasn't being effective enough and working out a different way. And so, yeah, I, it, it is absolutely about having people with a simple formula, which I'm sure we'll talk about soon, that you can just stop, think about that formula before you go into a meeting and you will deliver your, your message clearer, better, smarter, faster uh, than if you hadn't stopped to think about it. And so, you know, let's face it, the little tools in our toolkit that we can use at different times in the day or the week can be powerfully comfortable, you know, comfort, comforting, uh, as well as powerful, give you powerful delivery. So I think tools are, are where it's at. I want to sort of start with 
this idea of trust. And and in, in chapter one, you talk about the idea of building trust to get around the hand. Are you able to share a little with the listeners a little about uh, what you mean by that? Often an experience of internal advisors and organisations is when they come to talk to a senior leader, the senior leader will almost say to them, how can I help you? Meaning they think that you've come for your purposes rather than for their purposes. And so they'll often hold up the hand to say, you know, I just don't have time right now. You know, I've got other things I've got to get done, more important than whatever you want to talk to me about. Whereas if they trust that you've come to help them, that you're there for them and the greater good of the organisation, then it's a totally different conversation. Why would I hold my hand up? I might might say, you know, how long will this take? And, and um, um, as important is it now, but I'm not going to hold my hand up because if I trust that you're in it for me, I, I want to hear from you. And you, you talk about this trust factor, this trust factor. So when, when you talk about trust, well, what is this trust factor that you're alluding to? It's, it's uh, what do you, you know, sort of like the X factor, isn't it? Um, it's hard to put your finger on. Auditors are the, are the, are the, are the ones that are right at the, the furthest end of this scale. I, I don't have a, a lot of evidence for this other than I've, when I've asked manager after manager after manager, have all said the same thing. What do you think, when I ask them, what, what do you think uh, when an auditor comes to see you? And all of them, the same thing. Be wary, <laughs> be prepared. Uh, you never quite know what, what, what they've come to find out. And so it's very, very hard for an auditor to, to build trust. Trust factor for members of the same team in the, in the front office is very different because you're inside the tent. People inside the tent are naturally trusted. Anyone from outside the tent, outside the tribe, is not trusted. So while we're all in the same organisation, the people in production or in sales, they are, they are very much about their tribe and being inside their tent. And anyone who's not, not inside the tent doesn't have that initial trust factor. So it's, it's on this spectrum from being inside the tent, being part of the family, through to various um, levels of you know, finance, well, they give me money, so I better talk to them. HR, I need them to hire and to deal with issues. And it goes further out, and then you get the risk, and then the compliance people, um, which are becoming, you know, from the point of view of production and sales type people, it's less desirable right through to auditor. And so on that spectrum from um, inside the tent to, to auditor is this variation in the trust factor. And it's just something that everyone has to be aware of about where you're starting from because everyone has a perception of your profession. And, and, it's, and it's evidenced by the, um, by the names we give things. To be, so, so finance are bean counters, HR are tree huggers, compliance people are business prevention officers, marketing people are colour inners, that's my favourite. <laughs> and the, the safety people are, are the fun police. So that's the perceptions that you're walking in the door with until you've, until you've developed that trust factor. So essentially people have to be thinking about how they might be perceived and then how they can start to build the trust with whoever it is they're looking to influence. Yeah, and so I talk about being a persuasive advisor to become a trusted advisor. You can't become a trusted advisor until you persuade them to trust your, your advice. So as an internal advisor, it's a long-term game. You persuade them on a little bit of advice this week, but they take that advice, they get a good outcome. They trust you a bit more. And over 
you know, fly for a career, but but over months and then a year and then a couple of years, you become more and more trusted. And, and depending on, on how much you've needed to help them, how quickly, if you're from HR and you've got them out of a jam that they were in um, with a really beautiful outcome and, and, and no damage done, that trust can be built in a, in a week. And for other situations, it will take a lot longer. And for auditors, um, um, they do do it. They, they, they get be successful. They actually point out to management how they can be more lean or, 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 or more secure. Or, and, and managers who work with audit um, have better outcomes. Um, so it can be done. It just takes time. So I want to get straight into one of the models that uh, you share with, with with the readers in the book, and it's this Pathfinder model that you've created. So are we able to to, to share with the, the listeners what, what what's involved in that? Sure. So the Pathfinder model is called the Pathfinder model because every one of us puts up um, um, barriers to bad advice. So while you might trust your mum, you might necessarily trust your mum about advice on the internet, advice about how to use the internet, particularly if your mum's 91. So it's 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 contextual. So everyone puts up advice that uh, blockers to bad advice. The Pathfinder model is named because it's a tool to use to navigate through the barriers that we all put up. And here's the bad news: there's about seven billion people on the earth, and that means there's seven billion different variations of the barriers. <laughs> so there's no no simple formula. It's a formula that I, I know will help you sense the barriers and navigate past them. So that's why it's called the Pathfinder model and, it, and it's got four parts to it. Stand in their shoes, paint them a picture, tell them a story and then make them believe. Now, just to make sure what that is all about, we stand in their shoes so we understand them. If you can't understand them and what they're trying to achieve and what turns them on and what turns them off, all those sorts of things, you can't align what you want them to do with what they want to do. And they need to be aligned. So that's the first thing. A picture is worth a thousand words. Painting them a picture will provide them with clarity about what you are advising them about. Why do we tell stories? To connect. To connect the two of you or you and them, but also to connect them with the issue or with the piece of advice. And the truth about decisions is that people make decisions primarily based on emotion and then logic. So storytelling for connection is really important about, about driving emotion in the decision. The last thing is you make them believe through credibility. And that credibility can be built up over time, can come because of accreditation, can come because of track record, can come in many ways. But if you're not credible, the last bit of your advice won't land. So that's the that's the last bit that you if you, if you nail all of that and, and have the credibility and maintain that credibility, your advice will have a much 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 higher chance of landing. That's the Pathfinder model. I'm going to sort of dig deeper into that as, as we go through the the interview. But I was also curious about the building blocks of persuasion, which you talk about. Yes. So um, uh, Robert Caldini in the 1980s. He's a psychologist. So he, he wrote a book called um, uh, Influence the, uh, the Power of Persuasion. And in it, he introduced the world to six principles of persuasion. And it was really interesting. When I was reading the book for the first time, I got really confused because he starts talking about compliance professionals. And I thought, cripes, this guy in the 1980s written a book for compliance people. And it turned out what he meant 
the compliance professionals <laughs> were people, primarily salespeople, who get us to comply with their desires through little tricks. <laughs> so things like uh, one, of, one of the principles of persuasion is reciprocity. And, uh, and he talks about, you know, a, a waiter can in, in, you know, in the US context in particular where tipping is a, is a, is a significant part of their income. Um, they can increase tips through reciprocity. So the, the, the uh, experiment they ran was um, a waiter uh, or waiters um, at the end of uh, when they brought the bill, um, they just brought the bill. Another one was they brought the bill and gave them a lolly, a mint or a chocolate or something. Um, and there was an increase, I think, of something like um, 7 or 14% in, in, in the level of tips. Oh, that's right, 7% level of tips. And then it was something like uh, 14% when they gave two lollies or two mints. Um, but uh, it jumped to over 20% increase in tips when um, they went, here is, a, here is a lolly or a mint. And then they turn around and start walking away. And then they go, oh, you know what? Because you're such wonderful people, <laughs> here's a second one. And it jumped up like 20 odd percent. So this is all, you know, what he was talking about as compliance professional. And he wrote the book not so much for people to learn to uh, be a compliance professional, but also to help people be wary of it. So another one example, and we've all been, all been subject to it, is scarcity where um, uh, you know, the sale ends at five o'clock. If you don't buy now, you've got that feeling of, of missing out, FOMO. Yeah, so there's, there's six principles of, of persuasion. Um, I won't go through them all, but um, it's, uh, he, he was the father of it, Robert Caldini. And there's just one more, one more aspect of that that I would like to explore, which is where you talk about the push and pull of persuasion. Are you able to explain a little what you mean about that? Caldini's six principles of persuasion. What I what I started to realise as um, as I worked further to unpack what I was doing and what others were doing, so that I could get this down into this book to help other people, was that the six principles could be divided into push and pull. And fortunately, um, three push and three pull. It's always good to have uh, have balance, isn't it, Julian? Absolutely. So. so um, <laughs> so the way I uh, the way I restructured the six principles of persuasion, I slightly named them. Some of them I named them a bit differently. Um, works like this: the three push strategies are authority, scarcity, and credibility. Okay, so authority means like if I'm the CEO, I, I have influence, right? And so I can influence you through my authority. But anyone who's influenced by authority may develop a sense of uh, distaste because. They did it because of the authority, not because they really, really wanted to. So it's the lowest level. It's, not, it's, it's, it's a push. Another push is the scarcity one. I'm being pushed, to, I'm being compelled to buy now or to take the advice or, you know, because fear of missing out. And again, you can be left with a little bit of mm, a sense of um, being hard done by. And the other push one, Caldini calls it social proof. I, I sort of talk about credibility and, and, and what that means is I'm, I'm buying that that fashion because everyone else is, is buying it because some celebrity is wearing it. So therefore that's cool. So I'll do it too. So again, I'm being influenced by, by the social proof or the, or the credibility of, a, of an academic or a researcher or a politician or, you know, I'm being, I'm being pushed to, uh, towards that because of their perceived credibility in what everyone is telling about. Whereas when we move into the pull strategies, these are, I'm much more happy 
to be influenced by these and much more likely to be influenced because I'm happier about it and, and, and this, these will build trust even more. So, so reciprocity is, is one, you know, gift giving. And we just, we just can't help ourselves. If someone does something nice for us, we, we, we feel compelled to do something nice back. So that's good. The one that I've, I've named quite a bit differently to Caldini is one I call flexibility. And um, what that means is when you're providing advice to someone, so he talks about, um, for example, getting people to do something small and then they'll agree to do something bigger. So they'll say, the example he uses is if I can get someone to put a little, little sign in their window, you know, drive slowly, be safe on my street. If I come along uh, two weeks later and, with a, and, and say, here's a great big sign I'd like you to put in your front yard, they're much more likely to say yes. Whereas if you just came with a big sign, um, they're more likely to say no. So it was getting to do one thing and then um, they're more likely to do the bigger thing. Whereas what I say when I'm coming and bringing advice to someone, um, don't come with the answer. Don't come with one option. Come and be flexible. Be flexible with the options in your advice. But the highest level of, of pull is desirability. Um, Caldini calls it likability, but I take it one step further. Caldini says if you're likable, um, then people are more likely to take your advice. I say uh, if you're likable and what you're offering is likable, then you're actually desirable because it's not just working with someone I like, what you're offering me, I also want, so you're desirable. So that's the way I've taken Caldini's six uh, principles of persuasion and then structured them into a push and pull. So when people are using the Pathfinder model, they should have this in mind about what they're concocting with their painting and telling of stories and trying to be up in above the line with the reciprocity, flexibility and desirability rather than below the line with credibility, scarcity and authority. And you've also taken the persuasion a little little further again and, and you, you've created this persuasion pyramid which you use to uh, uh, share uh, this idea with people. Are you able to, over the audio, share with the, the listeners what the persuasion pyramid is? Sure. It's, it's, um, so when standing in people's shoes, it's easy to say stand in their shoes, right? But following on from that, what we were talking about earlier, Julian, about uh, good to have tools, I've developed um, a, a couple of tools to help people stand in the shoes of those they need to influence better than they might otherwise. And one is the persuasion pyramid. What that's about is thinking about people's personalities and their likes and dislikes. If you, like, if you know what they like, you can couch your, your Pathfinder model in terms of um, your, the picture you might paint or the story you might tell around their likes and avoid their dislikes. That's, that's the obvious. You don't want to have a red rag to a bull. You don't want to talk about sport to someone who hates sport. You don't want to talk about opera when someone who hates opera. So it's important to understand people's personality. That's the first thing. The second part of the pyramid, and we're, we're going up now from the personality to the baseline, up into the middle of the pyramid, is objectives. If you don't know someone's objectives, then how can you align your advice to those objectives? Well, you, you, you should. Otherwise, why would they listen to you if it's not got anything to do with helping them with their objectives? Now, some of the, some of the things that you might be uh, advising them about might be an organisational outcome. But don't forget, a, a successful organisation is part of their objective, even though it might not be really closely linked to what they do. But you've got to find a way to link it. And there's two types of objectives, right? There's the business objectives where you might, you know, where you need to go and find out what they are, what their KPIs are. You need to know that. But there's also their personal objectives. Do they want to be the CEO? 
Do they want a better work-life balance? Do they want to shift into a different part of the organisation? What are their personal objectives? It's not always easy to find out, but you, you should do what you can. But let's go to the top of the pyramid. At the top of the pyramid is where the gold is, the, the, the ultimate gold. And that is their challenges. If you are going to solve people's challenges, they're going to love you. You're going to be desirable. And there's two types of challenges, current and future. Solve my current problems and, and yeah, I'm going to love you. But tell me about a problem I didn't even know I had that's coming in the future and, and get me ready to deal with it. I'm going to love you even more. So that's the persuasion pyramid. Start at the bottom. Make sure you understand their personality. Move up. Make sure you're very clear on their objectives and how you can align uh, what your advice is to those, to those objectives. And then at the highest level, let's go to the challenges. What are their current and future challenges? And if your advice is going to solve them, make sure it's very clear to them because if you, if you can align them to that, you're desirable. Highest level of the, uh, of the um, principles of persuasion. I think in the in the, the the field of leadership thinking right now, there's quite a, a a shift, or I've noticed a shift over the last couple of years towards recognising that empathy is an important part of leadership. So getting all really away from that command and control type, and starting to really take the time to you know demonstrate and have a bit of empathy for your team. And in your book, you talk about actually they, people need to show some empathy for goodness' sake. Are you able to uh, <laughs> all that a little? Well, I think what's really brought out the empathy issue very clear now has been the uh, Royal Commission in the financial sector. And just this week with um, the new CBA CEO uh, in the seat and talking about the ex-CEO, Nerev, and the empathy that was not shown for customers, uh, and they just took too long to pull some of the really bad products they had off on offer. And of course, now they're you know maybe sixty thousand or more. I forget the numbers of people that they have to re recompense for this for this bad product. It's just poor empathy. It's just not having any empathy for your customer. So yeah, that's really highlighted that the that empathy is is really important. Um, and to show some empathy for goodness' sake. Now, hopefully, in a internal piece of advice in an organisation from internal advisor to to um, the business. Oh, and I should I should say, Julian, that you know everything. I, I focus a lot of this on internal advisors, but everyone's an advisor. The chair of a board is an advisor to the board, to the CEO. The CEO is an advisor to the chair and other board members. Everyone's an advisor. Um, but I do often catch um, my answers in terms of internal advisors and organisations. Too many internal advisors and organisations don't have empathy because they went to university or they, they've been to the, the latest um, seminar or the, the, the national conference on whatever their profession is and they've been told that this is best practice. This is what you should be doing. And they go into a, a session with the, with the business focused on that best practice and not on them. They don't care. They just want to be perfect in the eyes of their profession and they're not being empathetic to the needs of the people they're trying to advise. And they wonder why they don't get traction. Mm. So show some empathy for goodness sake uh, what one of the things that has come out through all the programs that uh, we run is that every single person acknowledges that they want to be a, a really good decision maker that they want to always make intelligent and informed decisions and you introduced this idea of thinking fast and slow i'm curious 
So the the book Thinking Fast or Slow by uh, Daniel Kahneman is the um, is is where this came from. Um, so Daniel Kahneman is one a Nobel Prize winner. He and uh, Amos Tursky um, spent decades. Amos passed away many years ago now. Um, and and Daniel Kahneman's I don't know how old is he, but he's, he's certainly getting on. But they spent decades um, basically studying how we trick ourselves all the time. <laughs> Um, and and ultimately, Kahneman wrote this book, Thinking Fast or Slow, and he talks about system one and system two thinking. So system one thinking is thinking fast. System two thinking is thinking slow. Why do we think fast and new system one? Because we make thousands of decisions a day. Tens of thousands, some people say. Little ones. And to cope, we think fast. And some of that thinking fast is we use heuristics. So just simple little um, um, rules of thumb that if it looks like that and feels like that and you know well it's probably that and so I'll just quickly make the decision that it's that but it's not always like that and so he what he likes to do what he's been trying to do is work out how can I help other people identify when they're thinking fast when they actually need to think slow what triggers can I can I create and so uh, following on so his book's got sort of like 40 a description of like 40-odd different examples of heuristics when we think fast, when we should be thinking slow. And what he, what he says in his book is that what he's trying to do is provide a language that describes what we see to enable conversations that will help us learn the possible interventions that can improve our decision-making or at least limit the downside. And um, to, the, to that end, I... I I came up with a uh, uh, decision model that's that's nice, simple, and easy to use called the MCI decision model. And it works like this. We have a tendency to go straight to implementation. We don't stop long enough to clarify the, the idea of, of you know how it's going to be done, whatever its potential impacts. Could it be done a different way? And what we do even less of is we don't stop and think about the original motivation. Are we even answering the right question? So, yeah, so I've got this uh, MCI decision model which says, Go back and wait to check the drivers of our motivation to see what blockers we've got now in our thinking. Clarify those blockers and then devise the creators of your, of your destiny so that your implementation goes well. Yeah, so that's thinking fast and slow. Okay. And why is clarity so important when you're in the stage of painting them a picture? <laughs> um, okay, but in painting a picture... The first thing I say to people is, what's going on in someone's head when you're explaining a concept or explaining your advice to them? So it's interesting how people don't answer straight away. It takes them a little while to get it. What's, I said, what's going on in their mind? And they, and they're thinking process, whereas what we're all doing is we're actually building an image. We build images in our mind of things. If someone says, listen, I've got a new idea for this uh, new chair, well, we're immediately thinking, you know, if we're in the business of designing fantastic business furniture we're thinking business chair and that person could have been actually thinking about a, a new a new um, chair for the, for the poolside you know we're going to take the business in a different direction but but just by someone describing a chair um, it, it, it's going to look very differently in someone's mind that it, um, it potentially could look very different in someone's mind unless you draw it for them so you need to paint a picture for, for, for clarity because if you don't paint a picture for them They'll paint their own, and it may not look the same. And talking about pictures, even a, a bit bit further, you, you spend some time in the book uh, talking about um, the value of drawing models, 
And I'm a extremely visual person, so I try to turn all of our our content into models. So I'm really fascinated by what you've got here. So you're able to share a little bit about why models are so important. Again, this was what part of my journey. Um, so a guy called uh, Matt Church. He's the guy who taught me all about drawing models. He's a guru on it. He was my business coach for a while. When um, I showed him some of my stuff, I'd already I'd already drawn some models. I didn't wasn't calling them that, but I'd drawn a couple of models. And he helped me realize why I had this ability to influence boards and execs that others didn't and the role that the models played in that. It's interesting, in part of my, my spiel, one of my spiel for boards, I actually said to them, oh, but let me paint you a picture. I actually use those words and then draw up this framework for them. Um, using an analogy along the way, all these things that um, I didn't realize I was just doing it naturally. Um, now I realize, well, an analogy was sort of like telling a story in some ways. And, and you can actually take the analogy and tell a story if you want to give the characters names and, and the story and places and things like that. So he made me realize how valuable they were. But then he also said, <laughs> very simply, um, that there is a whole a range of different models and they all do different things. There are uh, things like why models versus how models. So, so why models sort of are used to explain to people why they should be interested in what you've got. So my classic one that, I, and I, that I'd already drawn when, he, when he was my business coach was an S-curve for people in, in, um, in organizations about implementing um, certain programs. And the S-curve represented, well, you know, we don't get a lot of traction. And then when finally people sort of buy in, we, we ramp up really quickly along that, that, that vertical part of the S-curve. But to actually nail and get all the great benefits, it's really hard. That it's, it's the, the, the trajectory diminishes as you go further up that S-curve. And to get to the really end point is a lot of effort. And you've got to be really smart about it. And so that's my, you know, fantastic, well, it's my, my go-to uh, why diagram so people can see where they are on an S-curve. So he explained that to me. And then um, he explained that Venn diagrams, and, and you'll see Venn diagrams used in all parts of, of business these days, um, they're just really good for taking concepts and putting them down simply. And we in the Western world in particular, we like things in three, right? And so uh, uh, three Venns with something in the middle, uh, people go, oh, yeah, I get it. It just helps get complex ideas down quicker so you are painting them a picture for clarity. So in the book, I, I run through and give credit to Matt on his model building and the, how he's taught me. He's talked about the, the why models, the what models, the how models and the if models. And, and look, I, th I think it's, it's really valuable because I couldn't agree more that making things visual and turning into a model really allows people to, to get a grasp of it and enables to, them to remember it. So they might not remember all the words, but they remember the Venn diagram or they remember the pyramid and... And what we're finding is that the more and more we introduce models into what we're doing, the, the, the better and better the reception is being from uh, the people that come through our programs. Very true. And not only do they remember it better, with the diagram that you've given them, they can explain it to others. Yeah. That's a, that's a really compelling part of it too. So a lot of the things I do, I help people influence others. And they walk away with their model, their new model that they love, and then they can explain it, and then that gets, you know, and it gets momentum in the organisation. Um, so yeah, there's there's lots of reasons why you should be drawing models. And by the way, I can't draw. I yeah. have, I, I am terrible. Um, but that's why I use a four-coloured pen. Um, that was taught to me by another business coach guy called Scott Stein, and and he he um, 
He's the same. Terrible drawer. He just says, use the four colors. And so off I go. I just draw away with these four colors and, and, and people get it and they like it. Now, having said that, uh, if I if I had a bit more passion about being a, a better drawer, I, I think I could be more effective. But not being a good drawer is not a reason not to draw. No, no, I'm with you on that one. And you know, from a business perspective, I think models and, and frameworks are easier, hopefully easier to draw than you know the, the the world's greatest artwork or painting or anything like that. You talk about the value of storytelling, and I'm noticing that uh, in the circles that I, I travel in, people are really recognising the value of storytelling. So what's your take on storytelling? I've learned to love it. I, I was telling stories, and, and again, uh, through this process, I've learned why they work, how they work, how to, how to get more stories, how to use stories to make your point in different ways in different circumstances so there's no doubt in my mind that that, that they're powerful but here's the thing for me my research on decision making at the end of the day and and being an engineer I'm very you know logical thinking kind of guy right Uh, I didn't appreciate until I really got into the, the understanding decision making how powerful emotion was in the decision making process over logic and when I accepted that I accepted uh, and then elevated the importance of stories in influencing people's decisions. Then the world changed for me. Now I'm a, I'm a very uh, considered storyteller whenever I'm trying to influence. I choose my stories appropriately and I've got my 30-second, one-minute, three-minute versions of them depending on the, on the circumstances. And, and I'm very, very uh, clear on making the point that I want to make from it. And and it really is quite simple. Uh, you know, basically, a story has um, uh, has characters. It has uh, an incident or incidents, and it has a point you can make. <laughs> it's quite simple. And if you just remember those three things and 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 um, embellish characters and incidents as you need to go from thirty seconds to three minutes, or or, or take stuff out to go from three minutes to thirty seconds, um, you can still make the same point. But they're the three things to think about. I suppose one of the one of the advantages of uh, telling a good story is it, it does lead to an increase in people's trust of you because you speak about the importance of, of trustworthiness as part of the idea of making them believe. So, what what are some of the challenges you've seen that uh, around trustworthiness and people building trust? Well, I think, um, and I think most people recognise that trust is very fickle and be disintegrated in a, in a second so that's always you've got, you've got to be on your guard that you, you, you you've got to live I think one of the things about trustworthiness is you, you live to your values and if ever you don't and you switch values uh, unless you switch them very clearly and for very good reasons then people will trust you less so I think the advice I would give to anyone who wants to be sure that they're trustworthy is to list down your values and then ask yourself, how well do I live those values with my family, my friends, and at my work environment? And if you can give yourself a high score out of 10 for all of them, then I think you're in a good place and trustworthiness is your friend and then it's just a case of building trust in other ways, what I'll talk about in a sec. But if you're not giving your high score out of 10 for all those, then your trustworthiness can be at, at risk and you should, you should think hard about it. Now, 
assuming your values are, are fine, then I, I think really it's um, it's about working through processes that, you know, as I said before, persuade people to take your advice. Once they've had a good outcome, um, they're much more likely to trust you and to build trustworthiness. In particular, if you concentrate on going back to the persuasion period, their likes, not their dislikes, you help them achieve their objectives and you solve their challenges. Yeah, so that's trustworthiness. I suppose the, the, the natural sort of uh, partner to that is this idea of credibility and, and how we can develop it. So why is it important that leaders develop their credibility? The main reason for leaders to develop their credibility is because their advice will land. It's the last part of the tumbler of the, of the, of the lock on the safe. Um, you can stand in their shoes, you can paint them a picture, you can tell them a story, but your advice, your, your leadership will really land if the credibility is there. So a leader who is talking about safety and how important it is and then the safety track record of the organisation is abhorrent. People, it'll be deaf ears. It doesn't matter what what you paint, what story you tell, you don't have the credibility because you haven't done anything about it. Unless you're telling a story and painting a picture, you know, acknowledging your failures and why you failed and, 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 and what lessons you've learned from and how you're going to change and here's the program for change and all the rest, um, then you, you won't have the credibility. So that's why you need to nail your credibility. And, and to develop, um, to develop it, uh, again, it was the one, one I was talking about earlier, write down your values and make sure that you are living by them. That's how you make sure you're developing trust. And the other two things I talk about in developing credibility are developing your adaptability and your expertise. So whenever I talk to people in my workshops about, about um, credibility, um, these themes keep coming up. The expertise one in particular, track record. They use things like track record, experience, credentials, all those sorts of things when they think about someone who's credible. And so you should think about that. And in, in developing expertise, you don't have to do a course to do it. You can do free online courses these days, but also you can just read more widely. You can watch TED Talks. You can listen to great podcasts like um, the ones you, you produced, Julian. Just make sure that you're on game with your expertise. And then the, the one in the middle I talk about is adaptability. And the way I describe it is you can imagine the senior consultant dressed in the Armani suit addressing the board, having that credibility with the board of this big organization. But that same person, when they go and meet with middle management at lunchtime, what are they wearing and how are they talking? And lastly, when they go and address the shop floor, what are they wearing and, and, and how are they talking? If you can adapt to all three of those, then I believe you're, you're maximizing your credibility because you need to know how to walk in their, walk in their shoes and walk their talk. So um, that's what I mean by developing your, your adaptability. You've got to be thinking it's not just about the pinstripe suit and, and certainly not when you're on the shop floor having the bright white hard hat and the, the extremely brand new high vis. It's um, having a bit of scuffs on them would help. So someone told me a story recently about Lindsay Fox, the transport guy, magnate, and uh, uh, he has in his business card um, his, his, his role as truck driver. <laughs> and he'll often, you know, well, you know, so, so the story was told to me. He'd be in a uh, one of the one of the 
transport hubs and he'd see a truck that'd be moving and get in and do it. So that's um, that's adaptability, <laughs> credibility from boardroom to the uh, to the truck depot. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of good stories um, floating around about Lindsay Fox, isn't there? There's one that I've often heard is that he's, he's so focused on uh, the the image of his business that uh, he's driving down a street one day and he sees a Lindsay Fox truck driving by and it's all dirty and he rings the depot and says, I don't care what's on it, get it off the road and get it cleaned. <laughs> <laughs> Good on him. Yeah. Very passionate about his business. As, as, as we should be. So I want to, uh, just before we sort of get to the end, he's touched on this, this idea that you reference about deep listening. And why should leaders be thinking about how they're listening? So uh, a guy by the name of Oscar Trimboli, he um, uh, has written a book called Deep Listening, Impact Beyond Words. And uh, uh, it's a, it's a great little book, um, and it is a little book, but it's a great little book that just opens your your eyes and your ears um, to help you understand the, the the importance of it. Now, being a consultant for a long time, let's call myself a successful consultant, managed to feed the family. Um, uh, I must have been able to listen. I must have been a pretty good listener over the years. Otherwise, how can I help people and solve their problems? But it's interesting. He he read that the the, um, the epigraph in the book. It just 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 struck me. It reads like this: Every human asks to be listened to, yet what they crave most is to be heard. And why that struck home from for me is my my original version of. Um, winning conversations is a is a is a short three thousand word paper I wrote many years ago now, and the title of that was how to be heard. <laughs> and so it was actually about getting other people to listen to you. But the irony of it is, you can't help that you won't be listened to if you haven't listened to them first. If you haven't listened to them to understand their their, their personality, their objectives, and their challenges, you're not going to be you're not going to be listened to in return. So that's why you've got to be a good listener. So any any last words on leadership and uh, winning conversations, Brian? Well, I think I'd, I'd just like to re- revisit what I was saying about the, the, the chair and the CEO. Everyone's an advisor. Everyone would love a winning conversation. The importance is, 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 is obvious in terms of if you're, if you're having a discussion between chair and uh, chair and CEO. But coming back to the internal advisors and organisations, the point I make for them is it takes eight hours of their time or, or, or their, team, their team's time to prepare to give 15 minutes of advice to a senior executive. And I say simply, those 15 minutes can't be wasted. That's why you need to know how to construct a winning conversation. Now, while sometimes the, 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 the presentation may be 45 minutes, we all know that it's the... There's a 15-minute period in there where the discussions had, where all of this, where the decisions made. So that's 15 minutes that simply can't be wasted. I want to do a, a bit of a shameless plug on your behalf. I, I think everyone should go out and, and buy the book. So where should they head to buy it, buy it, Brian? And if they want to find out and connect with you, where's the best place for them to go? Uh, to connect with me, you can get connect with me on LinkedIn and Twitter, Brian Whitefield. Um, you can go to my website, brianwhitefield.com. 
And in terms of book, you can either buy it from my website, from Amazon, or in bookstores. Um, I know it's in Vimix um, and, and a few others, but it's definitely in some bookstores. So, yeah, hopefully you can pop out and get it. And, Julian, thank you very much for um, suggesting that. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Brian, for, for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it and uh, all the best. Thanks very much, Julian, and to you. Well, that wraps up episode 60 of the Synergen Leadership Podcast, another great interview with another great author. I'd like to encourage you to head on over to the Synergen Group website and engage in the conversation with us. Tell us what you liked about the episode. Tell us who you'd like us to interview or tell us what sort of content you'd like us to deliver to. And if you are an iPhone user, please feel free to head over to Apple's site and leave us a review. In next week's episode, I speak with Michelle Gibbings, who is the author of Career Leap, How to Reinvent and Liberate Your Career. It's another great author interview. And until then, happy listening.